A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Welcome to Murder Mile. Today, I'm standing outside of King's North House on Silchester Road, W11. Three streets south of the home of Scotch Maggie. Two streets west of Reg Christie's House of Horrors. And within the looming shadow of the Grenfell Tower and the tragedies which befell it. Coming one day to Murdermile. To the side of the endless roar of the Westway flyover, King's North House is a four-storey block of flats built during the post-war housing boom. Made cheaply of concrete, it was designed to last a decade, but more than 60 years on, although tatty and worn, these council-run flats still serve their purpose. As a graffiti-covered dead end, it has a distinctly lawless feel, featuring a long line of ominously locked garages, a no-ball game sign against which balls are kicked, a fly-tipped version of Mount Everest obscuring a no-dumping sign, and the exposed wires of a CCTV camera having been nicked by persons unknown. By and large, though, it's a typical council estate where families should feel safe. But on Monday the 11th of June 1973, in flat 12 of King's North House, 88-year-old widow Alice Parker was attacked in her own home by a man with no compunction to terrorise the most frail and vulnerable My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 211, The Old Lady Killer, Part 1. Everybody needs a mentor. Someone to teach us good from bad and to steer us from wrong to right. Many of us only need a little shove from time to time, but whereas others need a steady hand to guide them for the rest of their lives. And when they have it, they thrive. But when they don't, sometimes people die. 
the life of David John Harrison was as fragmented as his memory. Therefore, some details in the story may not be true. Born in Wales on the 25th of June 1945, David was the youngest of two brothers, to Frederick, a toolmaker and a housewife mother. Like many boys, he had a good start in life as he was healthy and fit. But his family life had been in turmoil since before he was born. Raised in a Jewish household, with his father having fallen for a woman outside of his own faith, unwilling to bless this loving union to a Christian, the Harrisons had to go out alone, being isolated from his family. From what David could recall, although his mother was a strict woman but hard-working, he said his father was kind. But owing to a thrombosis of the leg, caused by an injury sustained during the war, in 1953, when he was only eight years old, his father died and left David without a mentor. For some boys, being left at such a tender age to find their feet with a mother he would later describe as affectionate, but I was afraid of her, may have sent him spiraling into a pit of aggression. But being small and lacking in confidence, what it heightened was his sense of inadequacy, his inability to assert himself or to commit to anything. Although this shattered family of a widowed mother and her two young boys often suffered many bouts of hardship, giving them her best shot at life, this strict disciplinarian ensured that they both had a good education. Schooled locally from 1950 onwards, he wasn't the best student, but he wasn't the worst. His teachers said that his behaviour was excellent, he was quiet and cooperative, but that he lacked drive and ambition. Said to be a boy who needed the constant encouragement and reassurance that his late father could no longer provide, he tended to fester when no one was there to guide him. And although his attendance in his final year wasn't great, this was down to an operation which he never spoke of. His criminal history was as minor and petty as any young man going off the rails without guidance. On the 8th of September 1960, age 15, he was put on one year's probation for stealing a bicycle saddle from the back of the flats where he lived. And on the 26th of April 1961, age 16, he was convicted of shop-breaking and criminal damage in Willsden, being sentenced to an attendance centre for 12 months, where it was said he was polite, quiet, and flourished when he was being supervised. On the surface, he wasn't evil or vicious, 
he was just lost. And yet a second tragedy would push him further to despair. In 1963, when David was 18, he was at his mother's deathbed when he witnessed her die from kidney failure. After which, he became even more isolated and insecure, often refusing to discuss his past. With no parents, but classified by the council as an adult, although David struggled, he was supported by his older brother Frederick, a stable influence who was married with kids and he had a steady job. The brothers had a good relationship, but occasionally it would become strained owing to David's erratic ways. He never had a career, only jobs, and many he didn't hold down for very long. He was an office boy at the Boy Scouts for four months, a store boy at Lambton Engineering on and off for three years, and with a few pounds earned as and when he could at local radio shops, factories and even market stalls on Portobello Road. Which isn't to say he didn't have any ambition, as it was during his early twenties that he and some friends got into music and started a band writing tunes by day and performing by night. But later David would state, I was unable to keep awake so late. So guided by bad advice, he began to dabble in recreational drugs. As often happens, it started out harmlessly enough mixing vodka and cough syrup in order to give him a buzz. And as a little high that he liked, which was also legal, it quickly became a drug he would rely on. Struggling to manage the pain for the unexplained ailment which required an operation, he began to sink his syrupy buzz with an occasional codeine here and there, being a derivative of opium. Oddly, he would never describe himself as a drug user, but this daily habit would envelop him for years. On the 5th of June 1966, age 21, at Malibu Magistrates Court, David's addiction led to a further conviction whilst working as a packer at British Drug House, a pharmaceutical manufacturer where he stole 223 tablets of amphetamine and being charged with theft, he would serve 12 months probation. According to his probation officer, Mr. G. Lebowski, David came across as very immature, a boy unable to face life, who required someone to watch over him, something he didn't have. Therefore, it's unsurprising that being released, David's addiction made him blind to his morals. Whilst working as a porter at Queen Charlotte's Hospital in Hammersmith, 
He stole vital packs of tiny needles used to inject premature babies and several vials of methadrine, also known as methamphetamine. With his drugs no longer used to take the edge off his tiredness, they became a way of life. As seeking to vanish into a haze of distorted truth, rather than face his reality, David also took LSD. Often sleeping rough under the rancid roar of the Westway, he stole to feed his habit. But being too zonked out on drugs to tackle anyone his size, like a coward, David would only target the weakest, the lonely, and the most vulnerable, like 88-year-old widow Alice Parker. In May 1971, after his release from prison for the theft of three handbags, as a homeless drifter, David didn't look like a fresh-faced 26-year-old. If anything, he looked closer to 40. Being five foot seven, with a pale bony body, thinning brown hair fashioned into a long comb-over, a missing tooth, and a tatty goatee beard. His eyes were red and his face was ravaged, as his body often battled waves of highs and lows. Often gripped in the sweaty palm of hallucinations, the good ones took him away from his pain. But the bad ones, commonly known as the horrors, were a realistic nightmare impossible to escape from. So given how battered his brain was, as a chronic drinker, a heavy smoker, and a drifter addicted to pensadil, methadrine, and LSD, with his life a chaotic spiraling mess, in January 1972, his doctor diagnosed him with depression and anxiety. Prescribed triptazole, a tricyclic antidepressant, he collected it monthly from fish chemists on Portobello Road, and he mixed the good drugs with the bad. It's typical that when he asked for help, even as an addict, he was prescribed more drugs. What he really needed was someone to help him turn his life around. As he wasn't wholly bad or evil, he was just lost. Sleeping rough in a soggy sleeping bag under the rat-infested Westway, a bedraggled David found the guidance he needed from a man of God, not too far from where his home once was. From July 1971, Reverend Peak of the Goldborn Center, in the shadow of the Trellick Tower, gave him a warm bed, clean clothes, and three square meals a day. 
But more importantly, he gave this lost boy a focus. In September 1972, as David was doing well and was desperate to escape his vicious circle, Reverend Peake got him a job as an assistant at a second-hand furniture store at 99 Goldbourne Road. Working hard, it would end up being the longest period of stability that he had had since his father had died. Having cleaned up his act, quit the booze, and almost weaned himself off drugs, although he was still described by his probation officer as exceedingly brittle, the only crime that David committed during this period was a minor one. As on the 10th of October 1972, he was fined five pounds for a breach of his probation. As being too excited to work and to find a routine, he'd forgotten to tell his probation officer that he'd found a job. With the supervision of a trusted mentor, David Harrison was back on the road to redemption. But owing to a small spat with his employer, on the 7th of June 1973, he lost his home, his job, and he fled. Without guidance, David Harrison would be lost. And an elderly lady would needlessly die. Prior to the trial of the Old Bailey, on the charges of aggravated burglary, GBH, and willful murder, his defence was that, being in a drug-induced state, he was neither aware nor liable for his actions. Examined by Dr. P. D. Scott, a consultant psychiatrist, and Dr. A. Sistampalan, a medical officer, both of Brixton Prison. David was described as rational, articulate, and cooperative. That he reads well and he has a good vocabulary, given his malnutrition and his alcoholism. Questioned about his depressive bouts and his anxiety, although he'd been medicated for one and a half years, doctors found no evidence of depression. Likewise, having said that he suffered from blackouts. An electrocardiogram showed that his heart was normal. Having said that he was severely beaten up by three Irish men one year before, there were no clear signs of a head trauma. And although he would claim he had taken a bunch of mescaline on the morning of the murder, the doctors would confirm there was no evidence to indicate that his mental faculties were impaired at the time of the offence. And he was declared sane and fit to stand trial. By June 1973, 
The world wasn't in a horrible place, but there were still lots to worry about. 1.6 million government workers had gone on strike over pay. Earl Jellicoe, leader of the House of Lords, had resigned over a prostitute scandal. And UK Prime Minister Ted Heath had lambasted the monies which flowed from Tory MP Duncan Sands to a tax haven as the unacceptable face of capitalism. Having created these very laws, which made these posh twats even richer. Basically, very little has changed today. As one of nine million retirees in Britain, 88-year-old Alice Parker was living on a pitiful state pension. As with no savings, she would eke out every penny to buy bread, milk, eggs, tea, and occasionally a little treat. Born Alice Mitchell in 1885, in an era before every piece of concrete or steel within her fading eyeline was even built. Little is known of her life except for the basics. Having married Henry Parker in 1907, together they had a son called William and spent the bulk of their lives living in nearby Notting Hill. This area had always been her home her life and her safety net. As the familiarity of the street she was born in was almost certainly the place she would die in. Being widowed. In 1967, Alice moved into a one-bedroomed first-floor flat at 12 King's North House. As one of this council estate's most vulnerable residents, she strived to retain her independence by doing her own shopping. And although she lived alone, she was visited weekly by her son, a home help, and a librarian. Within her own home was where she felt safest. Being old, she was no bother to anyone and owning nothing of value except for sentimental knickknacks of happier times. She had nothing worth stealing. As an elderly infirm widower, her only worries should have been food, warmth and company not fighting off a crazed drug addict who had attacked her in her own flat. Monday the 11th of June 1973 was a sunny day. It was bright but cool owing to a light drizzle. As part of a routine, Monday saw a hive of familiar visitors Pop by Alice's first floor flat. As a local gas fitter, her son William always swung by for tea, a bicky, and a chat in the evenings. 
her home help had already done her rounds that morning. And being perched on the communal concrete walkway which overlooked the car park. By noon, Alice was keeping her eye out for Margaret, the librarian. Just before noon, David was walking down Silchester Road, passing beside the Westway flyover. He would state, I had no money, and I was sleeping rough, and I hadn't eaten in a few days. I was walking towards Latimer Road Station, and I found a piece of wood. Not a whole piece, a half piece. And then I see a door open. That was the statement he made in court. It was vague, as if he couldn't remember or he didn't want to recall. But his eyesight must have been good, as from the road, it's not easy to see through the trees. As a small white-haired lady, whose bony frame was swamped by her comfortable but ill-fitting clothes, Alice was alone, outside of her flat, as David ascended the concrete stairs to the first-floor walkway. Coming from her right, she saw the thin bedraggled man, who stank of cigarettes, drink and stale sweat, walking towards her with cracked eyes and a dirty face. Only he didn't look threatening. He looked lost, and he looked destitute, like the world had chewed him up and spat him out. And in a quiet, soft voice, when he asked her, where's Nottingwood House? Being just one building over, she told him. Of course, he knew where it was, as he knew the area well. But what he wanted was a distraction. In court, David would claim, I had no intention of using the wood. It was just a scare, really. She was going to sort of walk away when I grabbed her. Pushing this little dot of a woman inside of her own flat, he barked, Be quiet, or I'll kill you. As in his right hand, he brandished a sharp piece of wood, like it was a deadly dagger. In his own words, he would state, She started struggling. She scared me. I lost all sense and I started hitting her. I told her to sit down, and if she got up, I would hit her. Lying slumped, like a broken rag doll on her own living room floor. She lay truly terrified, as a crazed stranger with a malevolent look pummeled her face with his fists, until her pale skin went black and blue. Telling her to shut up, to shut up. and to keep quiet, to keep quiet or, I'll kill you. or I'll kill you. He dumped her in the armchair and told her to sit silently, 
as he ransacked her small, sparsely furnished flat. She didn't have much. But like many elderlies who distrust the banks, he stole all of her money. 20 pounds from a glass cabinet in the living room, 50 pounds from a black handbag, a lighter left by her son, and two pounds in small change in a jar from the kitchen. He had taken her life savings, but also her dignity and her sense of safety. Dragging her into the bedroom, I put her in the wardrobe so she wouldn't shout an alarm or nothing. And then he fled. Having been left beaten, bleeding and dumped. Inside an almost airless and dark space, no bigger than a coffin, this frightened old lady lay. Too scared to move, as with this terrifying drug addict having threatened to kill her if she screamed. There she would stay, all silent. At his trial, David Harrison pleaded not guilty to murder. Only it wasn't Alice Parker who would die. Although frail, as an 88-year-old woman who had lived through the Great Depression, two world wars, countless bereavements and had even given birth, fired up by a strength which had kept her independent, physically well and mentally sharp at this great age. Although a coward had locked her in, I was in there for about half an hour, Alice would tell the court. Well, it seemed a long time before I forced my way out. Hearing Marguerite Geyer, the librarian, arrived knocking at her locked door at 12.10pm. Marguerite would state, the front door was closed as usual, so I knocked. I heard knocking coming from inside. I looked through the letterbox and I heard Alice call, wait a minute. Having kicked the wardrobe open from the inside, a few moments later, Although bruised and shaken, Alice opened the front door and they called the police. Taken to St. Charles's Hospital, she had a large bruise on her head and two fingers on her left hand were badly fractured. But having been kept in for observation, She was discharged three days later. Arriving at the crime scene, 
Detective Sergeant Lancheat assessed the evidence before him. From underneath the table in the living room, a piece of wood was found. On the outside of a large fitted wardrobe, the finger and palm marks of the suspect was lifted. And with Alice giving an excellent description of the attacker, mid-twenties, average height, thin build, messy brown hair, a goatee beard, his right canine tooth missing, and he was wearing a modern coloured shirt, a brownish tie and a brown jacket. Although no one else had seen him, the police had a starting point for this baffling case. David was one of hundreds, if not thousands, of possible suspects that the police investigated. But with no prior history of violent assault, or the false imprisonment of an elderly lady, he was discounted. That day, as Alice was taken to hospital, David would confess, I got the train to Westbourne Park, and I booked into a guest house for a few nights where he enjoyed a bath, clean sheets, and a hot meal, of the life savings he had stolen from this terrified old lady, and he spent the rest on drinking drugs. Like many addicts, being unremorseful and having squandered her money on his own needs, David would go in search of another vulnerable old lady to attack inside of her own flat. Only this one wouldn't live. But who really was David Harrison? Was he truly a hopeless addict, devoid of any morals? A lost boy in need of guidance? Or was this all a ploy to save this old lady killer from a life sentence? The final part of The Old Lady Killer continues next week. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Oh, dear. Swig of water. Need a swig of water. Blimey, blimey, blimey. Oh, mmm. Oh, I'm trying to record this on a bank holiday weekend. It's uh, is it the Sunday today? Is it the Sunday? It is. I'm trying to record this on the bank holiday weekend. Oh, there's loads of people going up and down the canal because they've got nothing better to do. So they walk along the canal, and it seems to be the the habit that if you're a couple and you've got kids, you come to the canal to have an argument. Oh, that's all people seem to be doing, and they're standing outside my boat having an argument. And even though I've got my cushions against the window, forward and behind, people are just arguing their heads off. Oh, fuck off. Oh, taking off your little hat. There you go. Oh, cripes. I don't think I'm going to make a cup of tea. I don't know. don't have to be bothered. Oh, I just want to go to the coffee shop and fill up and uh, have my coffee. Have a cinnamon bun. Mmm, nice. Cinnamon bun. Decaf coffee. Mmm, there we go. And uh, I'm meeting a mate at Harper's Five down the pub. Uh, even though, even though, because uh, it's bank holiday, the pub's shut at nine o'clock. But as we rightfully said to each other, you know what? Pub's shutting at nine o'clock. That means we'll get home at a sensible hour rather than drinking until the ridiculous, ridiculous o'clock. I plan to do lots of editing tomorrow. I might even give myself a tiny bit of time off. If the pubs are shut and I can't do a charge up on my, uh, my laptop, I might not. I might not. Anyway, if you're new to uh, Murder Mile, um, I'm gonna—I might move the microphone a little bit nearer. There you go. Um, if you're new to Murder Mile, uh, this is uh, Extra Mile, unscripted, unedited bit. Uh, there's lots of waffle. There's a little bit of a quiz very shortly. Blah 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 blah. We just uh, do some shite. Uh, I, uh, how's my diet going? My diet's going shit. That's how well it's going uh t- this morning i had a bacon sandwich i'm gonna have another bacon sandwich in a bit and i had two yum yums for breakfast if you haven't seen yum yums before they're like they're like long donuts but it's like they're soaked in treacle or syrup mm, yummy 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 um what am i doing I, in a couple of days i'm heading off to naples i haven't had a holiday in nine years and I know some people go, oh, I've not a holiday in a long time as well. But uh, when you ask them about it, they go, oh, well, you know, I had a weekend break. That doesn't count. And then I went away for a week, but that doesn't count. It's like, I have not had a holiday in nine years. I've not had a holiday. And sometimes I don't even take a day off. So I'm gearing up for a holiday in Naples. So this is the 30th of April I'm recording this. Uh, so um, although I know some people will listen to this episode and they'll send me they'll go oh enjoy your holiday I always find it funny because it's by the time they send me a message it's, 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 those things are in the past so it's kind of it's done so uh, I I may have had a nice holiday I may not have I think I probably will uh, I'm taking Eva away that's what I'm doing uh, so I've already pre-warned the people of Naples that she does like uh, a drink, and especially with the, the the news just out that she won a court case, rightfully so. Uh, I think they were just too terrified to to say uh, um, that she didn't win it. Um, uh, the people of Vesuvius, I think what they're going to have to do uh, of uh, uh, Naples are going to have to fill the crater in uh, Mount Vesuvius full of vodka and give just give her a little straw. That should that should sort Eva. Right? You know what she's like. 
<sighs> uh, oh, I'll do uh, some thank yous to some Patreon subscribers. So thank you to a new Patreon subscribers who are subscribed to uh, Patreon. You can, if you want to do that, you can look look in the uh, the show notes below. Uh, you can uh, go to links, and it's in there. Or you can just Google Murder Mile Patreon, and it'll take you straight there. Nice and simple. You don't need to find a link. You just Google it. Um, so. Oh, I've got hiccups. It's because I had my fish sticks and my um, my quavers, as always, and I got a bit hiccupy, and uh, the old Jamaican ginger beer. Um, so thank you to uh, Diane Foust, Jen M, M as in the letter M, and Sophie Curivan. So Diane Foust, Jen M, and Sophie Curivan. So thank you very much. Uh, you get all access to all the lovely goodies. So you get all the uh, crime scene photos, stuff that I'll never share with anyone else. You get location videos. You get um, the uh, 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 unedited script for these episodes. So by the time you hear these episodes, the, it's all edited and I've done it. But sometimes I take big chunks out because they don't fit the episode or I, I, I don't think it flows nicely. So I take those out. So uh, they get all the unedited stuff. They also get, there's a monthly competition where you can win lots of Murder Mile goodies and I always uh, I, I, and there's lots of secret stuff as I put in there as well so if you subscribe to Walk With Me which is the weekly podcast I do online um, only on Patreon oh, no, I'm not one of these people who goes it's a Patreon exclusive and then a week later they release it on your iTunes this doesn't happen this goes straight this is private so uh, so therefore I put a lot of private stuff on there and there's a lot of secrets in there that only people who subscribe to Walk With Me will know so there we go uh so there you go uh subscribe it's only three dollars a month bargain it starts at three dollars a month and then you can go up and you have different tiers and things like that so there we go um just to say if you're looking for a new true crime podcast oh may i recommend picture the scene written by and starring andy and rachel it's well written it's well researched they're crackingly good fun um if you're looking for something that's not the usual true crime podcast as we know there's a lot out there at the moment there's a lot to choose from and most of them let's be honest is just people who get their facts off wikipedia or steal a journalist article and rehash it and add in inverted commas some hilarious banter oh my god oh my god i'm so funny oh my god well thank god uh um picture the scene isn't anything like that it's true they found something really interesting and original and they always come up with a nice fresh perspective which is a reason why you should listen to it so over the next few weeks i'll introduce a new episode of picture the scene for you to try out um so may i recommend <coughs> uh, series two episode 26 titled london 2018 a year in homicide in which wait for it they dive into a year in homicide in London, with the year being 2018. See, the title explains it all. So uh, go and check it out. It's a podcast called Picture the Scene. There you go. I'll do uh, another uh, episode uh, of that next week. Another uh, recommended episode. Right, let's do the quiz questions. Then we'll do oh, Michael, you idiot. Right, I haven't had... I, I was so desperate to get all this done. I did the quiz questions. I just forgot to add in the extra stuff. Right, I'll work that out in a second. Right, question number one. What... This is really annoying because this is two-parter, so I need to be careful that I don't mess things up for next week. And unlike usually, I've actually written part two already because uh, it was Bank Holiday Weekend, and I thought, I don't want to record over Bank Holiday Weekend because... You probably can't hear it, but there's a big motorway not too far. It's about a mile away from me. But because it's Bank Holiday Weekend, 
all the numpties who have motorbikes, who are normally accountants during the week, they're going out on their posh bikes and going, making twatty noises on it. So even though I'm a mile away from the motorway, all I can, all I can hear is twats on motorbikes. There we go. Anyway, let's do the quiz questions uh, and then we'll dive into some extra stuff. So question number one, what infamous block of flats uh, was Alice's house nearby? Question number two, in which country was David born in? Question number three, what religion was his father? Question number four, what first thing was he charged with stealing? There's almost a sentence. Question number five, David had a job as an office boy, but for which organisation? Question number six, how many tablets of amphetamine did he steal? My favourite question. Question number seven, what was the surname of his probation officer? Question number eight, he stayed for a year, or what, a year and a half technically, at 99 Goldbourne Road. Uh, but what was found in an earlier episode of Murder Mile, just a few doors down? <gasps> question number nine, I think, I, 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 the last one was eight, this is nine. Uh, what bank was he working at when he stole a purse? And question number 10, what was the first legal drugs he used? Uh, there were two of them. I haven't even put a question mark in there, so I could have accidentally given that away. Right, let's uh, go into some extra stuff. I forgot to put it in, so let's... Oh, let me try and not give away too much. Uh, so uh, primarily, he seemed to have grown up in and around the local area, as mentioned in the description. He was five foot seven, thin, brown, long hair. Uh, sometimes he did a little goatee beard. Uh, his... his it was said that his right eye tooth was m missing and i would admit i had to go searching to work out what an eye tooth was it's a canine tooth uh medium builds uh, a, bit, a bit kind of straggly in places long brown hair and he spoke with a very soft voice um uh, all of his education seems to be quite local like i didn't put it in the episode but he was at uh uh, St. Peter's CV School on Harrow Road, uh, the Balbury Road, Road School when he was an infant. Uh, he was at Lancaster Road Secondary up until about 14. Uh, and then he moved to the Isaac Newton Secondary School. Um, so, you know, he had some schools. It was relatively uninterrupted, except for in his final year where his attendance was poor but these all these attendances were backed up with notes from his mother and it is said that he underwent an operation in the last year of his school which was the reason for his absence but he would never speak of what the operation was and i found that really interesting i would love to know what the operation was uh every time someone quizzed him about it he would just never mention it at all um so as, you can see, as we can see in the episode, minor criminal convictions. So the first one, which I won't tell you about because that gives away one of the questions, but he seems to steal locally. He seems to steal uh, kind of in his early life as a kid. It seems to be things that um, uh, he, he kind of wants or needs. And it seems to be later on when he becomes more into drugs that it's kind of he steals anything that's available as a lot of drug drug users thieves would do uh stealing things that they could get rid of quickly money or uh something that's easy to sell like you know rings things like that easy to sell um 
various jobs throughout his life the first one we can't mention because that is a quiz question the, he worked three for three years on and off as a store boy at Lamson Engineering which were the manufacturers of cash carrier systems for shops um, they were the kind of ones where you have the you have the pneumatic tubes and they kind of fire the 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 tubes uh, up to uh, like a safe area uh so he, he did do this seems to be the thing that he did does seem to be trying and trying every so often but he can't seem to break the cycle of of uh drugs and even though he doesn't start out as kind of going straight onto heroin it's kind of you can see how things are um things are changing for him so uh, diagnosed by his doctor uh, January 1972 uh, with depression and anxiety which you can kind of understand because he's on he's on uppers and downers all the time and he's homeless as well so it's not really helping him um although he did seem to uh, collect his uh, prescription uh on a regular basis for antidepressants uh, he was a heavy drinker. Uh, he smoked 60 to 70 cigarettes a day. Jesus Christ, 60 to 70 a day. Even at my my heaviest, uh, when I used to be a smoker, I, uh, when I was on one, I was on a really shit job for a really, 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 really dog shit production company who made quite possibly the worst TV shows in the world. Really the worst. When you walked in, they had like a, a hall of all these pictures of all the shows that they made and you'd look at them and go god that's shit that's really shit i was on a i i worked on a uh a crappy um uh, uh meant to be like a um, help on my celebrity but it was a, a a haunted version starring keith jegwin yeah you're welcome <laughs> fucking dog shit man utter dog shit but people will watch that shit i keep saying to people like I know there's loads of people who complain about shit on television. They go, oh, there's so much shit on television. But you ask them what they watch, and they watch all the reality TV shit. And you go, well, if you watch shit, then the TV makers will make shit. If you don't watch shit, they will only make good shit, or good stuff, good shit. So, oh, God, but, yeah, but, you know, we all have we all have our vices, don't we? I've, I got into uh, first dates. I mean, it's crap, but I love watching it. Um, so, um, uh, uh, one of the convictions that he had, age 21, 5th of June, 1966, he was employed at British Drug House, which was uh, a company that made, uh, obviously, drugs. Um, he This is where he stole uh, meth, uh, amphetamine sulfate. He took it home and was charged with possession. Uh, he said during his life, he also tried mandrax and cannabis, but he didn't seem to like it. Uh, Later working at St. Charlotte's Hospital in Hammersmith, where he stole vials of methadrine, which is methamphetamine, uh, which is used as a central nervous system stimulant that is mainly used as a recreational drug and less commonly for the treatment of attention deficit, hyperactivity disorders and obesity, uh, as well as, as mentioned in the episode, stealing uh, small needles used to inject premature babies. So, as you can see, he's already got to the point of being a drug addict where he needs to steal more and more drugs and he doesn't care whether it affects, like, premature babies. I'm sure, you know, they need the tiny needles. But I'm going to steal... Boogers all over my hands. Lovely. You have to wash them before I serve Eva's cocktail, obviously. Uh, What else we got? Let's whiz on a bit. Oh yeah, I know. We'll do this. We'll do this. We'll do some of his uh, his convictions. 
Uh, we won't do that one because that's a quiz question. We won't do that one because it's a quiz question. We'll do that one because it's a quiz question. Um, uh, 24th of March 1971 in West London Magistrates Court, he stole three handbags worth £22. Uh, these seem to, uh, those seem to be handbags from people. He seems to have stole them in a leather handbag factory that he was working at, although I can't seem to see the name of it. Um, and around this point, he had loaned £190 of a friend in order to buy some amp equipment for his pop group. There we go. That makes me sound older. This is the words in the in the document. It says pop group. So that makes me sound really old. It makes me makes me wonder whether yeah, they were in the hit parade. There you go. I'm sure they were hip cats. There we go. Um, yeah, he couldn't pay back the loan. So th this seems to be part of his problem. So he does seem to have a little bit of drive. Um, but it doesn't seem to work. Uh, May 1971, he left prison. He was living with a friend, sleeping on the floor in North Kensington, which is North Kensington. North Kensington is Bayswater and Paddington. It's just known as North Kensington. Uh, uh, still drifting around, hard to keep down jobs. He got a job as a station man uh, at London Transport Authority in September 1971. But again, he lost his job owing to absences. This is the problem by this point. He's a drug addict. He can't he can't focus anymore. Uh which is when he bumped into uh, Reverend Peak of the Goldbourne Centre, um, who seemed to take him under his wing and gave him a place to stay and a job and um um the Goldbourne Road, we were there. Oh, I can't give that away because that's one of the quiz questions. Oh, these quiz questions are a pain in the arse. They really are. Um The probation officer uh, tried to do his best for him, didn't just dump him, didn't just say, well, you've had a falling out and blah, 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 and he kind of uh, disappeared. Early June 1973, so this is around the point that he had the falling out with his employer. Uh, he obviously, he lost his job and his accommodation. Um, uh, probation officer would say he was a good worker, but exceedingly brittle. Um, he gave him a voucher for a hostel on Kemble Street, W1, which is uh, Covent Garden. Um and 50p which which would have been enough money to get him some food and things like that but he failed to use the voucher so even though the the um probation officer had helped him out he just he, he didn't want to, he didn't want to use it we don't know why maybe maybe he, he'd gone back because he seemed to be hanging out a lot under the westway and in the police report it says this is a place for hippies down on their luck um there's a lot of drug abuse going on a lot of homelessness uh so even though he's under the neath the westway there's a bit of a, com a a commune of people around there he who he would um get to know um alice parker a uh, birth name mitchell <coughs> not really a lot about alice parker we know when she was born which is uh, 1885 so she's 88 years old good old grand age that was um elderly frail but still living quite independently, and I think that's really important to her. Therefore, she'd got her son coming round, and the uh, the home help and the librarian who who came round at a regular place. Um, I try to be a bit deceptive in this episode to to lure you into the idea because the episode is called the old lady killer, and then you meet an old lady, and uh, then there's reference to uh, David uh, being charged with murder, and you think, oh, Alice is going to die, but it's not Alice that dies. Uh, it's uh, you. You find that next week. Um, I've got to be really careful because I've already written the next episode, so my brain is a bit of a fog at the moment. So uh, Alice actually gave a full statement. So I might let's let's do that. Let's go down and read 
see if the full statement's there. Uh, bear with, bear with, bear with, bear with, bear with, bear with, bear with. I'm going past next week's episode. I've got to be really careful not to spoil it. Bear with, bear with, bear with, bear with, bear with. Bear with, bear with. Alice's statement. Right, here we go. Uh, she gave the statement on the 11th of June, 1973. She said, I live at the above address I have done for the last six years. During that time, I was all, I've always lived on my own. The only visitors I have are my neighbours and my son calls every week, either on a Monday or a Thursday. I have a home help calls on a Monday, a Wednesday and a Friday morning. I also have a woman who calls every other Monday from the local council libraries. In my one-bedroom council... Ugh, boat going past, and it's just rocking me. Uh, I just bought some new fenders the other day, so it's great. The boats... Even though these twats are gunning it like utter wankers. I'm going to flip them the bird. There we go. Yeah. Yeah, that guy's... Shaking his head, going... Like it, like a turd. Um... In my one-bedroom council flat... That's not what this guy's saying. This is what Alice is saying. In my one-bedroom council flat, I keep some things. There is just over £20 in the glass cabinet in the living room, about £50 in a little bag in the in the cabinet. There is also a cigarette lighter on the table between the window. The cigarette lighter was left by my son and in a jar, uh, which I had two shilling pieces and some other change. There would be around around £2 worth. On Monday the 11th of June 1973, about noon, I was uh, on my own at home, which is on the first floor, when I looked out of the balcony uh, as I was expecting the lady from the library. Um, as I did so, a man came along the balcony from the left and asked me, where is Nottingwood House? I told him where it was, and he then pushed me. I got hiccups. He then pushed me in and said, be quiet or I'll kill you. What a lovely man. Uh, at this time, he... Oh, flip's sake at this time he had a piece of wood in his right hand who were he pushed me to the floor in the i've written the loving room i doubt it in the living room and he started hitting me over the head and on the hands why oh, can't i think because i've got hiccups now i can't read this he picked me up and dumped me in the armchair near the fireplace he kept telling me to be quiet or he would kill me what a piece of shit he then looked in all the drawers and the cupboards and I saw him take my money, which was contained in a brown envelope inside my handbag. Uh, so that could have been a, uh, her savings or a pension, or, or maybe if she had a bank account, she may have withdrawn it. We don't know why. Uh, the envelope uh, had her name and address on it. Um, after he had taken the property, he picked me up and put me in the bedroom cupboard nearest the door. I was in there for about half an hour. Well, it seemed a long time before I forced my way out. Um and shortly after that that was when the librarian arrived so it was kind of lucky that the librarian did turn up it kind of gave uh, Alice the impetus to um, kick the door open and uh, work her way out which is not bad considering you know 88 years old um, although thinking about my grand you know even though she was in her 90s I'm sure she could have um, she was quite a feisty woman when she wanted, wanted to be um, what's this what's this Oh, um, I'm trying to find where I've put everything now because of oh, Michael, you idiot! I don't know where I am. Right, let's whiz down. Let's see if there's anything else about um the attack that we didn't say. Uh, David gave a statement. I pretty used. I pretty much used most of David's statement about the attack on uh, Alice Parker. Uh. uh 
it's quite interesting isn't it uh, she started struggling she scared me you know she she scared him I, I i just lost all sense and started hitting her it's interesting with all of his statements obviously you'll you'll hear that next week but he's quite vague in places and he uses the word just i just lost all sense it's just like oh it just happened this oh, oh i just walked into a house oh you just happened to did you um i think that's it uh the 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 marguerite uh 36 she was a voluntary worker for what was then the wvs what later became the royal voluntary service some noisy people outside uh she visited alice every fortnight and regularly changed her library books uh she said she arrived at twelve ten p.m she saw the front door closed as per usual she knocked she heard knocking from the inside she looked through the letterbox and heard alice call wait a minute i like that even though she's been beaten and dumped and shoved in a cupboard and locked in there she goes wait a minute <laughs> she should be polite uh, alice opened the door uh she was badly shaken with a bruise on her head i sat her down in a chair i got a neighbor and as a result of what miss parker had told me i phoned the police i noticed her front room was ransacked i didn't go into the bedroom uh and uh she was taken to st charles's hospital uh not too far away uh with a large bruise to her head and on her little finger her ring finger and her index finger um uh both uh fingers were fractured sorry her ring finger and her index finger both fingers were fractured she was discharged on the 15th so she, because she was because she was elderly and infirm even though she didn't seem to be that damaged because she got a large bump to her head uh they kept her in for three days just to make sure but she seemed okay uh as far as i can tell um alice died a couple of years later um some people may have said that this may have contributed to her kind of the end of her life but she was she was quite old by that point i think that's it i think that's it i'm gonna do the quiz questions if i can find the quiz questions because now i'm wheeling through it's a 27 page document i've created for this and now i need to find which has got the script and everything with it but now i need to find the questions here they are right here we go let's see how many did he get how many did i balls up let's try it question number one what infamous block of flats is near to alice's flat it was the grenfell tower might be coming to murder mile at some point i need to i'm, I'm diving through different stories i want i just don't want to tell the same old shit story that everyone else does where they go on wikipedia and go we'll just read out that shit i just if, it's, if i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it properly uh, question number two in which ca in which country was david born in he was born in wales lovely wales in the valleys i ate but uh question number three it, i i just had that question just so i could go all right but uh, question number three what religion was his father he was jewish don't expect an impression question number four uh what was the first thing he was charged with stealing it was a bike saddle question number five david has a job as an office boy but for which organization it was the boy scouts question number six how many tablets of amphetamine did he steal it was 223 that's a lot of amphetamine question number seven what was the surname of his probation officer it was mr lebowski there we go 
an episode about a layabout who takes lots of drugs and has a probation officer called Lebowski. There you go. Uh, question number eight. Uh, he stayed for a year at 99 Goldbourne Road, but what was found in an earlier episode of Murder Mile a few doors down? Well, if I remember correctly, 110 Goldbourne Road was Arthur Reed's Rag Merchants, and that's where Scotch Maggie's clothes and false teeth were found. Question number nine. Uh, what bank was uh, David working at when he stole a purse? It was the Cooperative Bank in Witham. And question number 10. Uh, what was the first legal drugs he used? There were two of them. Uh, it was... He made a mix... <sighs> he made a mix of cough syrup and vodka. Eva has that for breakfast. As a treat. Um, so that's me done. Helicopter flying over. Lovely. I'm glad, I'm glad I'm only on an extra mile. Uh, so that's all done. Hope you all enjoyed that, folks. Uh, next week is the concluding part of The Old Lady Killer. Uh, and that's that. I'm off down the shop. I, I hope it's open. Uh, have yourself a good week, folks. Stay safe and be good. Lots of love. <coughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.